For those of you who, um, who were here last week, this will be a reminder. For those who were not, it's a chance to put into context what we're doing these last few Sunday mornings. Um, several months ago, after I had decided to retire and uh, said that my last Sunday would be May 21st, Greg and the worship department came to me and said, well, after Easter, you know, why don't you put together a series of sermons, um, some things that you think are the most important things you'd like to share. And I go, well, that might take 40 weeks, but I'll try to narrow it down. I actually did write a list of things that um, was a longer list. And then I went through that list and I, I, I tried to figure out what exactly is it I think that, that God would want us to know. What are the most important things um, that God wants his church to think about together um, on a continuous basis. And so um, in the four Sundays that, that were going to be a part of my last few Sundays here, uh, last week I talked about discipleship. This week I think I'm going to talk about the church. Not I think I'm going to talk about the church. I am going to talk about the church um, and about what God wants for the church and who he wants us to be as the church. Um, next Sunday I'm going to say a little bit about God. And then the final week um, will be a little bit about the journey that God had, has all of us on. Um, so if you had an opportunity or someone came to you and said, hey, would you like to be a part of our organization? Maybe you'd like a job in our business. Um, I know that there are some young people out here this morning who are making choices of colleges that they're going to go to. And you read about the college and you're trying to make a decision about what you want to do. If, if, you, if, if, if that college or that business or that organization or that institution had a reputation for being judgmental and critical and irrelevant and fake and unloving and hypocritical and unwilling to listen, what would you do? I mean, that's not a very inviting kind of environment to join or be a part of, to be part of a, a group of people who are known in public as being judgmental and critical and uh, irrelevant and fake and hypocritical. I mean, who wants to be a, a part of that kind of organization, which begs the question this morning, why are you here? Why are you a part of a church? Because survey after survey and research after research continues to prove that people outside of the church have that exact view of the church. Those are the words they describe us with. That we're judgmental and critical and irrelevant and fake and unloving and hypocritical. Now we can shake our head and kind of go, well, they don't understand. They've never maybe been a part of a church. That's not really who we are. But I think that that's what every person inside an organization that has a negative public reputation thinks about. Well, if you were inside, you'd really know. But that's the persona we give off to others in some way, shape, or form. Lifeway Research, for instance, a Christian research firm, uh, and their director, Ed Stetzer, who now is with the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, says that 78 or 72% of the people who were polled think that the church is filled with hypocrites, that we're just hypocritical. That's our only reputation. That's the number one lead threat that they have about the church. But 78% of those very same people would love to have a conversation with someone about Jesus or even about faith. And so the public is making a distinction. I'm interested in the person Jesus. I'm interested in this person that the Bible talks about of Jesus. But I'm not interested in that institution or that organization that is known as the church. 
Now, people have all sorts of goofy ideas about the church, whether you're in or outside. Mostly if you're outside, you have different ideas. Uh, when I worked on the street at Christ Church of Oak Brook many years ago, um, one of my responsibilities was outreach and, and community relations, which means that when people would call Christ Church of Oak Brook and want to know, you know what we believed in or how you could get involved or those kinds of things, those calls would come to my office. And one day, one of those calls came in and a man was on the phone and he asked several questions about um, our faith statement and what we believed in and how we went about things. And then he finished with this question, well, how much does it cost to join? And so I said, well, $20,000, and you just write the check out to me personally, that'll be perfect. Actually, the question caught me a little off guard. That was one I hadn't heard before. But people get a mentality and a framework, right? Some people think that the church is like joining a social group or a club, maybe a country club or whatever the case might be, and there might be a membership fee. And that's how you get involved, and that's how you join. People have all sorts of different ideas about the church. And I would say that that's not a them problem. That's an us problem. If an organization or a business or, or a college, for instance, had a reputation that the church has, they would go on an amazing public relations campaign and marketing campaign to transform that idea. Because if it's not true, then somebody wants people to get the, the real idea about what the church is really about. And the only public relations firm that the church has are those of us who occupy the seats in the church and those of us who are a part of the church. That we are the marketing department and public relations part of the body of Christ. Now I care deeply about the local church. I've served in several local churches over the course of my career, 43 years in ministry, 36 have been sent and spent in local congregations. And I agree with Bill Hybels who says that the local church is the hope of the world. If you simply um, think about the demographics and the density of, of churches, we should be more influential. If you were to come down York Road going north and turn down Brush Hill, you would pass our church and you'd go down Prospect and you'd pass another church and then you'd go uh, down Butterfield back toward York and you would pass Bryant Junior High where another church meets right now and you'd pass another church, a Lutheran church on the right as you go and then you go back south down York Road to Brush Hill and there's a Presbyterian church on the left. Just in that little route, that little tiny route in Elmhurst, you're passing five churches. I mean, Elmer's itself has a, church, a street called Church Street. That should make us holy, right? What I find ironic about Church Street, by the way, in Elmer's, is that's not the street with the most churches on it. But every little town that you go to in the suburbs, Elmhurst, Villa Park, Lombard, Westmont, Downers Grove, Hinsdale, all have churches after churches after churches. By simply by demographic and, and dispersion alone, the church should be more influential. But the local church is in trouble. In research done by Thomas Rayner in 2013, he indicated that between 8,000 and 10,000 churches close every year. I mean, I'll confess, I had to read that three times to see if I was reading the numbers wrong. I even got my glasses out to make sure. I mean, doesn't that sound impossible to you? That 8,000 to 10,000 churches close every year? But Thomas Rayner, you know, he's a respected researcher. That sounds to me like the church is in trouble. 
that were eroding in influence. And so I want to look at um, several scripture texts that help us understand what God's idea is for the church. Because I think the church that people see and the church that people make um, judgments about is not the church that's described in the scriptures. And that's really where we should be. So Jesus uh, lived at his ministry, um, was crucified, dead, and buried, as we say. On the third day, he arose again from the dead. After his resurrection, he spent about 40 days with several appearances to the apostles. He ascended into heaven. And then it, it wasn't long after that, for the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles and chased them out of where they were in hiding, for fear of the Jews, they were in hiding, chased them out of this place where they were in hiding, and Peter came out and, and, and gave a little sermonette there in Jerusalem. He, he simply recited the history of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, of what he had heard and seen and experienced in the life of Jesus. And having made that speech, we're told that 3,000 people in Jerusalem were converted that day. And so when people say, well, you know, the church was about, I mean, the, the Bible was about house churches, not about mega churches. I'm kind of going, the first church had 3,000 people in it. That's a big church. And then the book of Acts describes what the people who were converted that day were about for the ensuing time. I'm going to, uh, there are a couple slides here of Acts chapter 2. This one is in white. I'll read this for you, and then we'll read the next slide together, which is in yellow. This is what that church was about in Acts chapter 2, the very first church that existed. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Let's read this together. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The first thing you learn about the, the church in Acts is that the church is people and not a building or a structure or a facility. The church is people. You know, we have a beautiful facility. This is a great building. I, don't, I, I think that if you're here for a long time, you kind of get spoiled by, by it. Um, God forbid if this church burned down tonight, I mean, more likely it would float away. But if something happened to the church, the church would still exist. In fact, I'm convinced that the church is stronger when it faces difficulty and problems than when everything is great and we're successful and wonderful. It's been proven throughout history. You know, if you look at the history of the church in China, under persecution, the church grew and thrived, as opposed to shrank and died. The church is people. But sometimes we get bogged down in procedures and governments, governance and protocol and how we should do this and how we should do that. And we lose track that the church is really a living organism. It is not an organization. This booklet right here I have uh, is called The Church Order and Its Supplements of the Christian Reformed Church in North America. 100 pages, 
well, actually, it's 99, but I rounded it off to 100, with 86 different articles in it about exactly what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to function, when we're supposed to do it, and who's responsible for it. It's not a bad thing. It's, it, it, it's very helpful because I think that the church needs to be effective and efficient. However, too often procedure and governance and process is the very thing that we worry about in ministry and not whether or not we're reflecting the image of Christ. And what I've discovered over 43 years of ministry is that that's often about our sinful side of who we are as human beings. We want to know who's got control and who's got the power. And who's got the authority? Because that's the most important thing to us. You know, who made that decision? Why are we doing this? Who's going that way? How do we get this? How are we doing that? That's the most important thing in the life of the church for many people. But the church of Jesus Christ, biblically, should be about basics. The first church focused on four things. The first thing it focused on was the apostles' teaching. They were focused on the Word of God. And we say that we believe that that the Scriptures are the only rule for life and faith. The Bible has instruction for every situation we face in life. I mean, this is one of the miraculous things about the Scriptures for me through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that something that was put together over 2,000 years ago is still relevant today. Where else does that happen? But in the church. If you're facing difficulty, if you're in the midst of a crisis, if you want to know what your marriage should look like, if you want to know about how to raise your children, if you want to understand about what values and priorities and ethics you should have in your business, if you want to know about how you work, the Bible is instructive in every area of life. It's extremely relevant. There's nothing more relevant in my mind than the Scripture is. And the people of God need to spend time in the Word of God, no matter how long we've been at it. There's always something new and fascinating to learn. I remember sitting in a seminary preaching class once, and the professor was talking about, you know, when you're in the ministry, sometimes, you know, you you run out of ideas, and you don't have things that you can say, and you're really trying to think about what you could preach about next. And I'll have to say that, um, well, you wouldn't find it surprising that I'm never short of words, but I've never been short of ideas. There's 66 books in the Bible with amazing stories and life constantly change. It's amazingly relevant for everything that we face in life. You never run short of our need to spend time with the Word of God. Now, if we choose to do that simply on Sunday mornings, it's a little bit like saying, well, I can have a healthy body, and it's great eating just to have a little snack once a week. If I just have a little snack once a week, a little snack of the Word of God, then I'm going to be good for the rest of the week until I have my next snack next week. Or if you have a spouse or a family member with whom you have a relationship and you say, you know, if I spend a few minutes with them once a week, our marriage is going to be great. We are going to understand intimacy. We're going to be together on everything. And wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's oftentimes what we do with the Word of God. You know, the Word of God, we're told here in the book of Acts, is that they spent time with the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching mostly focused on what they had experienced, heard, and seen of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so when the first church focused on the apostles' teaching, 
what they were really doing was growing more and more understanding of who Jesus was and their intimacy with him and what it meant to be. You know, the church was called the body of Christ. Not the body of Elmhurst. Not the body of Rush Hill Road. We're the body of Christ. And how we live, what we do, and what we say should reflect that intimacy with Jesus. Which is why we you know, recommend that people get involved in some way, shape, or form. Use your devotional time in the morning. Be part of a small group that studies the Word. Get involved in coffee break or men's fraternity or whatever the case might be to somehow be involved in the Word of God. The more time we spend with Jesus in the Word, the more we look like Jesus and it becomes natural for us. The second thing we're told that the church did is they, they spent time in fellowship together. And in Genesis, when God created human beings, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. We're, this is not meant to be a solo life for us. We're not meant to do life on our own individually. We're created for companionship. The Bible uh, has this unique word in the New Testament for fellowship called koinonia. They didn't just meet together in the same room, in the same facility. But they shared life together. They made sure that no one had any needs that were not met. Whether they were material needs or relational needs or emotional needs or spiritual needs. They were committed to one another. And that's why in a large church like Elmer's Christian Reformed Church, where we have like 1,600 people baptized to our oldest, and we have two different worship services, one at 9 and one at 10.30, that we encourage people to be involved in small groups. Because that's really the capacity of the church, is the small group. That's where you learn to live life together. That's where you can be held accountable. That's where you can share your moments of life that are the most important to you. Oftentimes as a staff, we'll hear about something that someone's dealing with in the church, and when we get a hold of that person, well, our small group is already taking care of that. You know, thank you for your call, we're glad you're interested. But our small group is already involved in helping meet that need. Small groups are where the intimacy of the church, I mean, and from all levels of ministry. Right now, there's children downstairs. They meet in a large group in children's worship. And guess what? Then they break off into small groups. Our junior high and high school ministry uses small groups. When we took our congregational survey a year, a year and a half ago, about our discipleship process here at Elmer's Christian Reformed Church, you told us that the most valuable time that you spend in the life of the church is when there's a small group component to that ministry. That helps us in our spiritual life more than anything else. It's great to come and worship. It's great to be part of a bigger body. But it's really in the small groups, in the koinonia, in the fellowship, where things take a difference and lives are changed. That's one of the reasons that we've kind of developed this section concept. So and if, just a reminder that, you know, oddly enough, if you look around, our sanctuary has beautiful sections. Here's a section right here. You're in a section. And here's another section. And up there, thank you for waving, there's another section, because some of you are sitting in the dark. So there's another whole section. So in this service, there's three different sections to our sanctuary. And we have an elder or two and a section leader who's responsible to try to help create community. You can sit in that same section every Sunday, and most of you do. That's why the section leader thing works. But if you're in the back of this section and you're in the front of the section every Sunday, do you ever see each other or engage in conversation or talk with one another or even know each other's name? You think you do, but maybe you don't. It's been very rewarding 
um, since the beginning of the year to spend some time going to section meetings in the garden room following the worship services. You know, so section leaders have arranged for groups to get together and, you know, you go to that meeting and you just notice that people are engaging in conversation with people they never talked to before. When we have the greeting time in worship before, you know, if you sit in kind of the same place every time, guess what? You end up kind of greeting the same people all the time. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. By the way, Ben, you and you guys are in the wrong section today. Why are you over here? I'm all thrown off. My whole preaching is lopsided. But when you go to a meeting with your section and you meet people and engage in conversation, you might find out that you live near one another. Or, or you work in the same field. Or you have the same interests. Or you do the same kinds of things. And you start to create community. It starts to create koinonia. It's what the church is and should be all about. Experiencing life and faith together. The other thing that they did was they broke bread together, we're told. Now some would say, well, that's just a specific reference to the sacrament. Well, it kind of is, and I'm sure they practiced the sacrament. But it also says they met in one another's homes and they ate together. They shared meals together. There's something great in, in creating community and intimacy with one another by just sharing a meal together. At the section leader meetings, they always have cookies and fruit and things to eat because it creates community. When you have a meeting for, for your work, sometimes you have breakfast meetings, sometimes you have lunch meetings, sometimes you have dinner meetings. Because over a meal, something happens within us that transforms that kind of relationship. It creates a sense of relaxation and intimacy and commonness and you can linger over a meal as opposed to communicating with a text. Jesus instituted a meal as a way of remembering him, the Lord's Supper. In that meal, we are reminded of what Christ did for us, his broken body and his spilled blood. And we believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, somehow God feeds us in that meal. But when we eat together, that's also part of God's meal. When we pray before we eat, we are reminded that that food and everything else that we have comes from God. That he's the source of our resources. And we acknowledge that before we even engage. I was reading an article this week about Monty Williams, a professional basketball coach whose wife died a year ago in a horrible, tragic automobile accident when her car was T-boned by a woman who had been on too much methamphetamine or whatever the case might be, some kind of drugs. And he's left as a single father of four young children. And they kind of recounted how he grew up. And one of his professors from college and one of his coaches noted the fact that every time Monty sat down to eat when he was growing up, he prayed before he ate. Even if it was at McDonald's, even if it was at whatever, when he's out with fast food with his buddies, before they had pizza together, he would always pause and pray. Because that meal was sacred to him. The picture that is painted of our time in heaven is of a great banquet that will be celebrated. 
It shouldn't be lost on that the first miracle that Jesus ever performed was at a wedding reception. And when they ran out of wine, he made more so the celebration could continue. And they prayed together. The church should be a body that is involved in and practicing prayer. And this looks different in every church. It fits the culture of the church. It's important in the church. We have people who pray consistently for our church and for our ministry. We have prayer requests that are shared throughout the week online. We have prayer partners after our worship services. We publish in our bulletin people that can be and need to be prayed for. Those four things should be central to the body of Christ. And when we focus on those basics, I believe that God will bless us and we're going to avoid all the misperceptions that people have about the church. Just focusing on the basics, the fundamentals, the Word of God, the koinonia, the sacrament and the breaking of bread together. And praying, if, if that's what we really focused on, our lives would be enriched and we would be that shining light and living water that God has called us to be. And it would radically transform the perception of the church in the world in which we live. Where we get in trouble is when we start to get into all sorts of other things. Politics, making moral judgments, making pronouncements on behalf of the rest of the world. We've already spent a little bit of time earlier in the service looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 9. Before we look at that passage together, I just want to ask a question to everybody that we ask in our new member class. Can you be a Christian and not belong to a church? Discuss amongst yourselves. No. Can you be a Christian? and not belong to a church. Well, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 9, has the answer in it. I'll read white, we'll read together the yellow. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Let's read together. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is in serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Can you be a Christian and not belong to a church? I think you can be a Christian without belonging to a church. But you're not going to realize all your potential as a Christian without being part of a church. Isn't that what... Paul says in this chapter in Romans that each of us have different spiritual gifts. We're all part of a body. 
When Paul writes about spiritual gifts to the church in Corinth, you know, he says, you know, body part. I mean, if you're a body, I mean, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In other words, all the parts of the body need one another to function fully in the way that God intends us to function. We all need one another to reach all of our God-given potential. We've all been given gifts to use in the body of Christ, and body parts need each other. We need each other to be whole and complete. We all have gifts that are essential to the use of the body of church. We need leaders and teachers and people with the gifts of compassion and caring and people with the gifts of hospitality who make people feel welcome when they show up. We need extroverts and introverts, old and young. We need elders and deacons and deaconesses and coffee break leaders and small group facilitators and youth volunteers. We need everybody in the life of the church to be involved. Because being a Christian is not a spectator sport. And you never age out of service. Now in the course of 43 years of ministry, I've heard people in churches say things that just kind of make my blood boil a little bit. Would you like to know what some of those are? Everybody wants to, I want to know what makes your blood boil. I overheard a woman one time in conversation um, say, well, you know, I I served in the church when I was younger. But I'm not going to do that anymore. That's somebody else's job now. I'm done with that. I've served my time. Let let some younger people do it. And I kind of thought... Really, aren't, aren't we a church that kind of goes by scripture? And that if you have gifts and talents and abilities, you should, you, know, you can serve in the church? I mean, for instance, I've always had this weird philosophy that older people ought to be the ones who serve in the, ministry, in, in the nursery, not younger people. We have this idea that because you're the ones with kids, you should serve in the nursery and take care of the kids that are there. I think, well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Isn't it kind of nice if you're a parent? To not have to have all those kids to work with? Wouldn't it be great as a grandparent or an older person to take care of somebody else's kids? When do you age out of service in the nursery? When do you age out of service in our children's ministry? When do we age out of service? And you might be thinking right now, uh, you're retiring? I'm retiring from full-time ministry. I'm not retiring from life. I'm not retiring from ministry. I'm sure I'll find something else to do. And some other way to serve. Maybe I'll serve in the nursery. If my wife will let me. The point of what Paul, none of us can be all that God intends us to be unless we're somehow involved in the life and the body of the church. The church functions best and overcomes misperceptions when we're all humbly using our gifts to contribute. And when that's the case, you alter the perception of the church and the rest of the world. Because humility simply means this. We realize that anything that we have and anything we accomplish is a gift from God. It's not about us. We didn't do it. And so if you have a gift to use in the church, then we use it in the church. Greg led us earlier in a reading of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I think that as... Paul writes to the church at Ephesus as we look at Acts chapter 2. When he writes to that church in Ephesus, this is what he has in mind. 
It all begins with humility. And Paul is very specific about one issue in this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And that has to do with unity in the life of the church. We need to make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit. Now our elders held discussions beginning in the fall and you know, into the early months of 2017 around a question. And the question is, what would it look like in our church? Or would it be possible in our church to have one worship identity instead of two different worship identities? It's just, it was a philosophical question. There was no decision-making proposed at the time. It was a part of a discussion the elders should have because it's the elders' responsibility to kind of oversee worship and the spiritual growth of the congregation. What, what would it look like if we had one worship identity? And after we talked about this for several months, one of the things that rose to the top in those elders' meetings, to be very honest, was the idea that in the life of our church, we have a unity problem. There's some disunity in the life of our church, particularly around this issue. And what it really boils down to is the kind of thing that it boils down to all the time when there's disunity in church. It's about our own personal preferences. This is what I like, and this is what I want, and I don't want it to change. And this is what I like, and this is what I want, and I don't want it to change. It's not about God's vision for the church, God's idea for how he wants to use us in the world. It's never at that level. It's always at the level of what we like and what we appreciate. The church, the body of Christ, should be a place where we accept everyone just the way they are. That's the way Jesus went about his ministry. All are welcome. All are welcome. We can sing. All. All is a big word. We accept everybody just the way they are. Immoral, unethical, confused. They don't know their theology. They don't have their doctrine in place. We're not really concerned about what you wear or how you appear. Jesus first and foremost accepted people and loved them. And his love was what made them want to change. There's a huge difference when somebody says to you, if you change, I'll love you. Or if someone simply says, I love you. I love you. God calls the church to be a place where we love people. And when the church functions the way that God's designed the church to function in the book of Acts, it says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed. When it says everyone, it's not talking about everybody who sat in the pews or gathered together in these houses. It said that about everyone in town. Everybody around them, everybody who observed the church was filled with awe at all the things that they could do and did do. And they enjoyed the favor of all people. Not just people who were like them or who agreed with them or a part of them. They enjoyed, enjoyed the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number every day. That's when the church is the hope of the world. That's what God wants for the local church. And and who wouldn't want to be 
a part of that. Let us pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it instructs us, for the way it challenges us, for the way it stretches us. Thank you for the truth that comes through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the love and encouragement, support that we feel in the body. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in this particular body, that we would live into the vision that you've placed before us to be your source of your shining light and your living water. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. It is now time to continue to worship with our tithes and our offerings. Uh, may we be as generous in returning God's gifts to him as he has been in blessing us with them. <laughs>